ready for the interview And if you get a cue live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show Let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo, let's have a combo Say what you feel, be real That's the motto Real talk, pronto Doctor D, PhD, hit the intro Hold up, wait Gotta be social Network global A home for the locals Gotta be social Network global A home for the locals how are you today, Laura? I'm great. I'm super excited to be talking to you today. Yeah, me too. I uh, I think this is a, a really excellent topic, if you will, a kind of mother-daughter relationship, parental relationship. So for the audience, just for everyone knows, audience, if we're going to get on with our conversation here, but if you have a question for Laura, at some point, just hit join and you can ask her a question related to her book. But Laura's going to start out with a little excerpt from the book for everyone. All right, so um, this book tells the story of my um, embattled relationship with my mother um, over more than five decades, um, our determination to love one another, and the surprising collision course we ended up on at the end of her life. And the question I'm answering, I'm struggling with as the protagonist in this story, and also uh, for the reader is, when you have a parent who has betrayed you in the past, is it possible to take care of them at the end of their life? Mm. That's, that's what I'm looking at. Um, and it, you know, in my case, it was a huge betrayal, but it doesn't have to be necessarily something big. It could be some kind of misunderstanding that just got papered over and never resolved. And then suddenly there you are um, being asked or in the position of becoming a caregiver and can and should you do it? And, mm. and what does it require? What is it going to require of you as a human being to um, take that step? So what I want to read to you, um, every story has what's called an inciting incident. And that's like, that's like the, the event that just kicks the story into motion. And, and it, it, it shows you the conflict um, that the story is going to resolve. And so uh, this is chapter two um, of the burning light of two stars. And um, the only thing you really need to know before this um, is that the scene immediately before this is uh, I'm sitting in my backyard and I have this notebook that I've gotten from the cancer, um, the Stanford Cancer Center. I've just finished a year of very intense treatment for breast cancer and I've been declared healthy. And I'm in my backyard at this fire pit and I'm burning this notebook. And I'm doing this basically ritual to just let go of this year of cancer and to embrace the rest of my life. And, and you know, I'm, I'm burning the pages and I'm thinking, you know, now finally I can move forward without any toxic surprises. You know, and I could just relax and digest this ordeal that I've just been through. So that, that comes immediately before this okay. scene. So this is called The Call. Two hours after my ceremony, I tasted my homemade tomato sauce simmering on the stove, added basil and oregano, a generous pinch of salt, a splash of red wine. Karen was picking up the kids on her way home from teaching reading at Watsonville High. They'd be home in half an hour. I was about to drop a handful of spaghetti into a pot of boiling water when the phone rang. It was my mother in New Jersey. We were due for a call. We hadn't spoken in several weeks. 
Cradling the phone between my neck and shoulder, I dropped the pasta into the pot, stirred to separate the strands. My glasses fogged with steam. I imagined her smoking parliaments, curled up with an Afghan on the couch in the den. She'd probably just gotten home from her poetry class or her Shakespeare class or her course in miracle study group. I could never track her schedule. I set the timer for 13 minutes. Lori, I've got a surprise for you. Oh yeah? I was only half listening, maybe a quarter. I opened the fridge rooted around for salad fixings. Why don't you guess? I don't know, Mom. What's the surprise? Don't you want to guess? I pictured her lighting another cigarette, residue of the day's lipstick reddening the tip. Uh, you went to an audition and got a part in a play? No, I'm afraid my acting days are over. Guess again. Just tell me, Mom. Are you sure you want to know? Of course, I want to know. Darling, I have finally made up my mind. She paused for effect. I'm moving to Santa Cruz. I wanted you to be the first to know. Blood rushed from my head. I closed the refrigerator, leaned back against the door. Pictures of the kids and little square art magnets clattered to the floor. It's true, years earlier, in a moment of generosity, I had invited mom to move out to California when she got old. We talked about it once or twice. I never thought she'd actually take me up on it. It had been 10 years. It finally feels like the right time, Lori. New Jersey just isn't the same anymore. That's right. Your friends are dying off, going into assisted living, or moving to be close to their children. Oh my God, that's me. My hand tightened on the phone. My mother and I had been estranged for years. Yes, we'd forged a shaky peace, but 3,000 miles still separated us for a reason. Our reconciliation only went so far. I just love Santa Cruz, and I love your family. Wow, Mom, that's amazing. I mean, great. I'm so happy. Well, that's good, darling, because I met with a real estate agent today. I've put my condo on the market. She says it's the perfect time to sell a place at the shore. I collapsed onto one of the red, cushy chairs at our Formica kitchen table, stared at the black and white checkered linoleum. The floor needed a washing. Lori, are you there? Yeah, Mom, I'm here. You still want me, don't you? <laughs> of course I want you. We all want you. It's just that I never thought you'd actually do it. Well, I'm not getting any younger. No, she wasn't. Mom was 80 years old and her memory was failing. You don't sound very excited. I am excited. I'm just surprised, that's all. How could I possibly be excited? 
The woman who'd betrayed me at the worst moment of my life was moving to my town, and I was the one who'd invited her. A beep reverberated in my head and wouldn't stop. Mom was talking about escrow and how hard it was going to be to pack, but I barely heard her. She was the white noise in the background. I was hovering outside my body, listening to just one voice, the one screaming in my head, taking up every inch of bandwidth. I finally gotten through cancer, and now this? Why the hell didn't you ask me? How about, Lori, do you remember that conversation we had 10 years ago? I've been thinking about it more seriously and wonder if you still think it would be a good idea. For me, for you, for us, for Karen and the kids. Or how about, Lori, I know you're just getting over cancer. Is this a good time for me to move across the country to live in your town? My friends told me about this gorgeous mobile home park right at the beach in Santa Cruz. Deanza, have you heard of it? Yes, Mom. I'll go right from one ocean to the other. So you'll stop by and talk to the manager? Sure. Happy to do that for you. I grabbed a brand new yellow legal pad. It had been months since I'd made a list. What would I have put on it? Take toxic drugs? Throw up? Smoke pot so you could eat? Grow white blood cells? Watch West Wing reruns? Survive? As I wrote, find mom a place to live, Deanza, on the pristine yellow page, mom said, gotta run, darling. I promised your Aunt Ruth a call tonight. Click. She hung up on me. The timer was still beeping. I looked into the pot. The spaghetti had congealed into a gelatinous mush. I dumped it in the compost and set a fresh pot of water to boil. As I lifted the heavy pot, I knocked my favorite glass off the counter and it shattered on the floor. The kids were going to walk in at any moment and they'd be starving. I swept up the shards and set the table for four, but I couldn't remember which side the fork was supposed to go on. Fantastic. That was <laughs> awesome. I love the way you read. I love when authors read their own stuff. Well, I, I actually did the audio book. So oh, it, that's it was good. Super fun. <laughs> that's good. I'm glad somebody else didn't read it. That's good. I mean, you, man, that came across real. You know, I thought the whole time, like, my wife has your story on some level, very close, like taking care of the mother on her deathbed and this conflict of this turmoil they've had their entire life with each other. Mm -hmm. I resonate. A, I've seen it. I saw it up close, you know. <laughs> I think it's a it's a very common story, you know. It's um and it's very challenging because, you know, being a caregiver anyway is super hard. You know, you it's exhausting, um it's scary, it's uncertain, it's disruptive, and then you're like you're watching someone decline. And it's very sad. But then when you add on to that, the fact that there's some really unresolved issue between the people, yeah. it just makes it way harder. 
So let's talk about, I think it's, it's, it's appropriate to start going backwards. Let's talk about the origins of the relationship that you and your mother had. How this all kicked off, all of the tumultuous <laughs> aspect of it throughout the decades, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, to start with, I think my mother, my mother was a beauty queen uh, when she was young and she kind of remained that her whole life. I mean, until she got really old and she was, she was the sun and she wanted me to orbit around her. You know, I mean, she needed to be the center and she happened to give birth to a, a strong, powerful daughter. And, you know, when I was really young, we, we got along fine. Um, but when I reached probably puberty, you know, and I started to assert my own self, we started to have massive conflict. Um, and I, you know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s and I was a, you know, I was a counterculture. I was a hippie kid and <laughs> everything I did, you know, was horrifying to her, right. all my choices. And they were pretty horrifying. I mean, <laughs> I imagine I was a really tough daughter to have, but still she saw everything I did as personally an affront to her, as if I was doing it to, she used to say, you're doing this to destroy me. You know, she was an actor and she was super dramatic. Yeah. Um, so that we started kind of with a baseline of conflict. Um, I came out to her when I was 23 years old, you know, and her response in her typical way was, you've confirmed my worst fear about you. Oh, you know, and, you know, she in a few years, she came around and she yeah. became super supportive. But her first response was always like that. But the, the thing that really um, devastated our relationship was when I was um, 27. I began to remember having been sexually abused as a child. And it was her father was the perpetrator, my grandfather. Oh. And I told her uh, when I was 28, and I was definitely at the worst point in my life. You know, I was just devastated by these memories that were flooding me and um, just not at all sure I would ever get through this. Um, and I really wanted my mother's support. And I got exactly the opposite. I mean, she said I was making it up, I was lying, I was doing it to destroy her, you know, and, and then I went on and I um, wrote my first book, which I, I co wrote with Ellen Bass, it was called The Courage to Heal. And that book was about how to heal from child sexual abuse. And uh, it became this underground classic and a bestseller and it catapulted me into the public sphere for being an incest survivor, you know, I've traveled around the country, speaking, um, and inspiring women, you know, auditoriums full of women. And so not only had I broken silence about this thing that my mother insisted had never happened, but then I was doing it on national TV. So the two of us were just, we were so at war and I, I desperately wanted her to believe me mm. and just as desperately she wanted me to recant. And so that we were stuck there for many years. That was, that was like, that was the final straw. Between that us. was the final straw. Yeah. yeah. And was there ever a moment where you two maybe got a little bit closer or you thought maybe there's something there that will pull us into a better direction? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the story of this memoir, you know, is, is that there was something between us. I, I don't know that I could even define it, but it was like both of us we're always determined to try to find our way back to each other. Mm. And even the years we weren't speaking, uh, we wrote to each other. There was oh. this, this incredible correspondence we had, which I kind of conveniently forgot. Uh, but what, after she died, I found this, this cache of letters and they were amazing letters. She had saved um, every letter I had ever written to her 
you know, this is all pre-internet, so there's no email. This was this <laughs> yeah. was the age of still writing letters. Right. She right. had every letter I'd written to her. She had every letter she'd copied over every letter she'd written to me and the first drafts of the letter she didn't send because they were just too raw. Mm. And then I had saved all the same, you know, in these musty journals that were like moldering in a box. And when I put it all together, there was like this amazing um, history. And it was it was super challenging for me to look at these letters because what happened was that I had been telling these stories about my mother my whole life, and she was always the villain. And right, I was always right. the victim or the hero, you know. And when I read these letters, I realized that our relationship was never as black and white as I made it out to be. Mm. And that, that there were some really angry, nasty, horrible letters, and there were some incredibly loving, generous letters. So I had to start revising my own sense of my history and, and realize that I had been, you know, I had held on to every bad thing she'd ever done and kind of set it in stone. And the good things, her good qualities, I had just, you know, just let them drift off like water. Oh, and so, man. so I had to confront a lot about myself. Um, and, and, you know, I think the biggest thing that helped us um, was when I got pregnant, I was 35, I got pregnant with uh, my son, Eli, who's now 28. And I think when I got pregnant with him, I really wanted her to be his grandmother, you know, it, my mother had some terrible qualities, but she also had a lot of really good qualities. And I, I'd seen her with my niece and I knew she would add a lot of value to his life. And she desperately, you know, wanted to have him in her life. And I think that motivated us more than anything to try to connect. And that the, the main thing we did, and we did a lot over a course of maybe 10, 15 years, but we agreed to disagree. So this huge issue mm -hmm. of the incest, which we could not agree on, I stopped trying to convince her and she stopped trying to convince me. And we sort of set it aside. And I, I couldn't do that until I had really healed a lot from the impact of that abuse. But once I did that, I didn't really need her validation in the same way. Yeah. And she was able to let go of the fact that I was never going to recant this story of what had happened. And we started to find some other like tendrils of connection, like little things like, you know, we both really love the movies. So we would go to the movies together or we both love the theater. We would go to the theater um, and and she started um, coming out to California for more extended visits in the winter. She'd leave New Jersey and the, the, the cold winter and she would rent her own place in my town and she would be very busy with her own activities. But yeah. it, it enabled us to spend some time together It enabled her to get to know her grandson um, It enabled her to participate in family activities. We would cook together and we also fought a lot. I mean, we would we would often like at first it was just so volatile, like you just say one thing wrong yeah. and we would just retreat into our corners you know um but over a period of years of consistently trying to rebuild a connection that was not based on the conflict we became more comfortable with each other and more easy and i would i wouldn't say it was intimate like i i just never really confided in her you know i didn't feel safe in the deepest yeah. way um until actually she had dementia at the end of her life and then when she changed suddenly she was safe because 
she wasn't the same mother I'd had before. But we did achieve um, an ability to, to communicate, to hang out together, and to enjoy each other, even though there still was um, distance between us. Right. Well, let's talk about this theme of kind of parental relationships. And you mentioned something earlier that I totally, I was just saying this to the audience before he got on that I think this is more common than not. That, you know, we kind of all often fed this narrative that mothers and daughters, fathers and sons, you name it, we're going to have this all time great relationship, this fairy tale of best <laughs> friends. Yeah. And often what I've seen in, in, my observation in life that that's really not that common. What have you seen? Um, you know, I, I would say I, I know a few people in my life who have that kind of relationship. You. I, <laughs> I feel, and I feel jealous of their relationship, but I, I don't think that, I don't think that's very common. And I, I think there's, there's something in the generations, you know, being in a different generation that just makes it really, really difficult. You know, yeah. there's, I, I, you know, because I have now, my parents are both dead. I have three children. I have three grandchildren. So like, I've really thought about this whole yeah. generational thing a lot. And there's a certain gap that is just there. I see it with my own children. And we don't we don't have a traumatic or difficult relationship. But there's, there's a distance. And I think, actually, there needs to be a distance, at least it's my kids, my younger kids are in their 20s. And it's a time for them to establish themselves as separate people. And yeah. having me as their best friend is not part of that picture. <laughs> you know? But I, I, uh, I, I, I liked it when I was the center of their universe, but I also accepted that that was, that was only when they were young children. And now it's, they're both with partners. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they should be doing something else with their life. And I'm <laughs> more on the periphery and yeah. it's painful sometimes, but it's also really important. And you know, I see these families sometimes where they like every Sunday, they all have dinner together. Yeah. And, they, and I, you know, I'm just not in that kind of family. Yeah. Uh, although I feel like it's a functional family and we really love each other. Um, so I, I, I think you have to work with who the people are. And, <laughs> and I think sometimes parents yep. uh, try to constrain their children too much. I mean, I, like when my kids went to college, I told them they could go anywhere. I, I didn't say, you know, you have to stay in our town or you have yeah, to stay within yeah. 50 miles. Um, and they all went to went to school really far away. Yeah. And, and you know, it meant I got to visit them. And I don't know if that was a good decision. It's just the decision I made was right. I wanted them to feel free to explore the world and to to not not hold on to them so tight. Yeah, I've seen both ways. Like my parents were very much like, go wherever you want, experience life, be independent. And I never felt like they did it because they didn't want me around. I felt it's just, they just wanted me to like have my own life. And they always have been so supportive. I don't even live anywhere close to them. I live in Washington state. They live in Maryland. Like we live, we've yeah. never lived close to each other ever. And I think both sides are okay with that. Maybe a little more as we've gotten older. But I think that uh, that independence to me is really important, I think. But then again, I don't know what's right, what's wrong. Some people do really well living near their parents most of the yeah, time. They do. It's not, a, it's not a right or wrong. And I think I think the thing, you know, I'm older than you and I could say that it's it changes over the life cycle. Right. You know, like as your parents get older, 
that may change. You know, right. when I had children, it changed. It's like certain things happened in life and and I ended up, you know, my, my dad, my parents were divorced, but my dad too, I got really close to him when I was an older, you know, not older, but I mean, right. not when I was a young adult, but as I matured, he and I got really close. And so I think, I, you know, what I tried to, um, you know, this story that I wrote covers 57 years yeah, um, from my birth until my mother's death. And I really wanted to demonstrate that that relationship with a parent, it just changes it yes. changes it, you know if you had if you had said to me when i was like you know in my 20s like you're going to be taking care of your mother at the end of her life i would have looked at you like you were so <laughs> insane you know it was like no way i didn't even want to talk to her you know right and i had moved three thousand miles away you know as far as i could get without crossing an ocean and it was right. intentional so you know i never would have imagined that i would have ended up as her caregiver and wanting to be Mm. Uh, and it, it was, you know, it was really a, a spiritual growth for me. I mean, it was, it was an incredible challenge to overcome our past and to, you know, for a while I was going through the motions of like being a good daughter, you know, I could do yeah. the right activities. I could, you know, be resourceful to her. I could take her to the doctor. I could, you know, do all the things that you're supposed to do. But inside I was like cold. And my heart was really hardened. And so for me, the journey was, can I actually open my heart to her after our history? You know, and what was it like at the end? Like, what were the emotions that were going through you when you knew it was close to the end? Uh, you know, I, I have been, I, you know, I think I've been at a bunch of births in my life and I've been at some deaths and they're, they're very similar. And to me, it's like a, it's a very sacred time when it someone is. is coming into the world yeah. or out of the world and it feels the same. Ooh, I mean, nice. it really feels so much the same. And so for me that the very end of her life, it felt like a really holy time. And yeah. I, I don't usually use that word holy. It's not yeah. really in my vocabulary very often, uh -huh. but it was, um, it was a really sacred experience to be able to be there. And fortunately at the end of her life, we were able to get her on hospice so that she wasn't my dad died in the hospital with an intervention that never should have happened oh, you know God. and it was just i it was a horrible experience for me i mean it was it was what he wanted he wanted to go to the hospital that day instead of staying home and it's so that you know they were trying to revive him when he'd already died and i was the one who had to say you know stop he has a dnr a do not resuscitate right. order um and it was just you know it was like this hospital environment my mom died you know within a hospice setting and so we were able to just be with her around the clock we were able to stay with her body after she died as long as we wanted yeah. um and it was it it allowed for this intimate experience and you know my kids they were i think my daughter was graduating from high school that year my son was a college student and they were able to come and just hang out and be there you know my brother was able to come and it was it was a very meaningful time and i i really felt at the end like like clean like mm. i had i didn't i wasn't carrying any unresolved feelings oh, towards that's her good. that's good you know and and i had worked really hard for that yeah it's nice that it seems like both of you wanted that over the course of that because there's other times where like 
I've experienced with not me personally, but people I know were like, they never had any resolution and the, right. and the person died and then they're hanging on to it and they can't actually talk to the person anymore. That I, I just, I disagree with that. You know, I, mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of people do a hell of a lot of resolution after someone dies. I yeah. mean, sometimes you can't even begin because maybe the person was so toxic yeah. or so difficult or, you know, violent or, um, you know, just such a incredibly mentally ill. I mean, just sure. so difficult uh, that it was impossible. You know, sometimes it's yeah. really impossible to work something out directly with someone. But I think on the inside level, you can still resolve a relationship either while the person is alive or after they're dead. I mean, I've, I've watched this with a lot of people that yeah. they're still continuing that relationship after someone dies. They're coming to terms with it. They're making peace with what they got and what they didn't get. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're maybe letting go of the boundaries they had to hide, hold, or, you know, they're forgiving the person, uh, or at least coming to some kind of resolution. So, you know, I think reconciliation is not just this kind of deathbed reconciliation scene like we have in the movies, you know, the violins yeah. are playing yeah. and everyone yeah. forgive. I, I think that's, that's bullshit. I mean, it does <laughs> happen. It happens rarely. I but agree. Most of the time, it's it's more like what I did. This agree to disagree, yeah. where you you come up with some um, guidelines, like right. like let's say you're you're estranged from someone, but you want to go to the same wedding, you know, and you make an agreement, like I'll come to the wedding, but I'm not sitting at the table with dad, you know, or yeah. I'm not posing for any family pictures, you know, or I'll come visit, but I'm only staying for two hours, not for a week, you know. So <laughs> there are there's a whole range of sure. possibilities and it's not all or nothing it's not like either you have this fantastic ending and everything is wonderful or you're you're screwed you know and yeah um you know i i guess i've thought about this topic for about 20 you years. certainly have <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it's i think you have such great perspective on it i think where i was coming from is i've seen a lot of people just haven't resolved it and the person's gone and they're just struggling with it and yeah. i'm sure that's normal in a lot of ways you know like but it's it's hard watching somebody struggle through it and like it continues to eat them up when they you know that that's difficult to watch you know yeah and, and you know grief that's that's uh, of a complex relationship or unresolved is the hardest yeah. or ambivalent. You know, if you've been ambivalent, right. you love someone and you hated them, you know, or you <laughs> right. love this right. about them and hated that about them right. and, and, and you never got to resolve it. And uh, yeah, I think that, that really complicates grief. It uh, does. But you said yeah. something I thought I hung on to this about you basically you were saying about creating boundaries, not this all or nothing thing like, Hey, I'm going to come to the wedding, but I'm not going to sit here, stuff like that. Can yeah. you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think we often have this, well, I'm just not going because I'm just going to avoid this whole thing. Talk a little bit about kind of the, that push and pull a little bit. I mean, not going is a perfectly good option. I want to sure. say that, you know, I mean, I think, especially if there's been any kind of like abuse or violation or right. betrayal you get to choose, you know, and, and I chose not to be around my family for many years. And I don't regret that at all. I needed that time and space, but it was only after a lot of time passed yeah. that I started to be able to kind of navigate the gray and not just yes or no, you know, right. I'm going to see them or I'm not going to see them. <laughs> right. And I, I also started to, um, 
look at like my mother, for instance, like I, instead of just seeing her as my nemesis, you know, this, this like, I, I used to describe her as this like spider who had me mm. in her web kind of thing. You know, that's, that was my, my stance in my twenties, yeah. but I started looking at her whole history and, you know, this man who had sexually abused me was her father, you know, and she grew up really, really poor. She had immigrant parents. Uh, I, I looked at like the epigenetics of trauma. I'm Jewish and there's right. like, there's right. trauma coming down through the family Most line. Definitely. Yeah. And that there's, there's all these, you know, and then her generation and the expectations of women. And I not only started to understand her more, I really started to admire her. Like she, she was a pretty amazing woman for her generation. But it took me a really long time um, to get there. I mean, that wasn't your question, but no, no, it's great. Of, in terms of the, um, you know, making those kind of boundaries, you know, you can set those boundaries. You can't guarantee that the other people on the other side are going <laughs> to hold them. But you know, I've seen people yeah. go to like a, a therapist or a mediator, and like with the express purpose of, we all want to be at this event together. Let's make some ground rules, you know. And and if someone is a skilled facilitator it it can be possible it's it's not always possible and it's certainly not ideal but i think it enables you to be at an event you want to be at yeah um, and there's you know right now there's just so much divisiveness in families i th i think this this idea of you know how do you maintain what is possible even though you might hate what someone believes right you know or what they think you're just like oh <laughs> you know I was just talking about this actually before you go. I said, I was just pondering some questions like, it may be hard to be around your family. Let's say your mother has very conspiratorial fantasy based reality and you have very logical, pragmatic, and you're just crashing into each other about this. How do you be around that person? You know? I mean, again, you get to choose not to if you don't want to, right. but also I think it's possible. Um, to focus on the things where you can connect and that that you have to give up being right. I mean, I think any reconciliation, yes. <laughs> you have to give up being right and you have to give up being able to convince the other person that they're wrong. Yes. I mean, as long as your agenda, um, you know, I mean, I have a brother who won't get vaccinated mm. and, you know, he and I have these conversations and, you know, I have to give up proving him wrong. And he has to give up proving me wrong right. in order for us to continue to have a relationship. And we've actually done really well. I mean, we have Thanksgiving coming up and it's at my house. And I told him he can't come. He can't come because he's not vaccinated, you right. know, and, and he could have, he could have got on his high horse. I could be on my high horse. Instead, we both feel really sad about it and have empathy for the other person. And I think we talked the other day and we talked mostly about other things. And we spent five minutes talking about this. And he just said, you know, Laura, what I really appreciate is that we're being kind to each other. Yes. You know, and that we're we're respecting each other's perspective and which maybe was a little too far, but we were <laughs> that we're we're um we're we're loving each other. Yeah. We're focusing on what we what we have achieved, because he and I had a lot of hard times in our lives and we've come together, we came together after our mother died. And I, I really value, he's my, the last member of my um, original family. Right. And, you know, I really value him. Um, and yeah, he has ideas that I don't agree with. Um, and I hope, you know, in a few years, this is this part of our relationship is behind us. But <laughs> I feel really proud of 
being able to find a way to continue to connect. Uh, mm. But I absolutely can't do it if I'm pissed off at him for his stupid ideas. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I love I love that you say like not spending time is an option. And I think sometimes with within families, there's this expectation, this obligatory expectation yep. of like, we have to do this, even though all parties don't want to do it. Is the option is you actually don't have to. That's an yeah, actual. It's option. very, it's very freeing, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's super freeing to just not do it. Although I remember, like the first time I didn't contact my mother on Mother's Day, this was like a thing, you know. She was really okay. attached to. You had to do the right thing, you know, on her birthday and Mother's Day. And back in my twenties, uh, when we were really at our most estranged, I didn't call her on Mother's Day, and I didn't send her a card. I didn't do anything, and but I spent the whole day miserable and thinking of nothing but her. Mm. <laughs> so I did set the boundary and I right. really suffered for it. And I, I think I needed to um, yeah. at that time, because I think that those obligatory things, uh, it's sort of like you have to break the obligation yes. in order to come back on your own terms. Yeah. And that's how it was for me. You know, I had to create separation from my family um, so I could do my own healing and, and establish my own autonomy and become an adult on my own terms. And it was only after I really had established all of that, that I could consider coming back. And because I'd already broken off completely, you know, their expectations of me were pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> there goes Laura. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was definitely like, you know, the, the uh, problem in the family. I, I was see. the one that everybody whispered about, you know, and, and uh, I stopped getting invited to, you know, the weddings and the, all the event didn't get yeah. the birth announcements. And, and then I worked my way back into the family, you know, um, and ironically, uh, now that I'm publishing this book, it took me uh, 19 years from the last book I published to this one. And in part, it's because I, I knew that this story was one I wanted to tell. And I, I just dreaded the idea that I would become, I would lose my family again. Yeah. And that that really was an impediment. And I, I but I finally got to the point after I finished writing it, which I, I kept telling myself, you're just doing this for yourself, um, where I decided I, I felt like it was an important enough story that I wanted to publish it and that I was going to have to live with the consequences of yeah. probably like maybe, you know, 10 people, a dozen people like these are people, my mother's generation has all died off. But these are so these are like my cousins, we all shared that grandfather. Um, and, you know, for some of them, it's going to be really challenging that I wrote yeah. this book because I'm, I, I, the book does not dwell on the incest story, but I couldn't tell this mother-daughter story without giving the backstory at least a little bit. So, right. you know, and I, I think there's a lot of things in here that they'll be disturbed by. And I, when, when I was younger, you know, when I was 31 and I published my first book, my attitude was like, you know, basically screw you. You know, I'm right. You're wrong. You're in denial. I'm going to do this. Now, I feel more empathy for uh, the people in my family who may be disturbed. Like they're they're private people, and I'm a public person, and I'm forcing this on them, really. Um, so I I wrote them a letter. I apologized and basically said this is what I'm doing, and I'm really sorry if this, you know, is is challenging for you or painful for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard having a writer in the family. Yeah, I would imagine so. So let's <laughs> while we're. Uh... Wrapping this up, I want to get back to the, the title of the book and how that came about, The Burning Light of Two Stars. So for many years, the working title of this book was Wholehearted. 
um, because I felt like that was the trajectory of the, the main character who was me, you know, from being kind of shut down and closed from trauma and other things to becoming more open hearted. Um, and when I took it to my publisher, they said, you're probably going to have to change the title because for one, it's it's used. The title is used by uh, Brene Brown, uh, mm -hmm. the sociologist, and, right. and it's sort of like she owns that word. She don't own a word, but I mean, sure. people associate it with her. I went on Google and there were a ton of books with this name. Um, and I was like, you know, what I learned in terms of marketing is you want the title of your book to be the only thing on the Internet with mm -hmm. that title. So if people look for it, they're going to find you. They're not going to, yeah. they're not going to say now, which of these 10 books was the <laughs> one I just heard about on right. you know, Darian's podcast. Yeah. Uh, you don't want that to happen. Um, and so I, but I only had like a few weeks to come up with a new title. Um, and so I crowdsourced it. I, I put it on Facebook and I'm part of this kind of really giant private group of memoir writers. I posted it there. Um, I sent it out to my mailing list of like 10,000 people <laughs> and I got like, 500 suggestions of yeah. new titles and uh so a lot of them were like too on the nose they were just too direct and you don't really want to give away what your book is with the title and, and that's why i love the new title it's intriguing it's like what it does is. this mean it is um and the day after my final day to have a new title this woman uh, her name is karen bartholomew um, she had been a former student of mine she called and she said i have a title for you and the thing that's amazing about Karen is she's a visiting nurse in my town and she had been my mother's nurse. Oh, wow. So she actually knew my mother. You know, she had met that's her you know, half a dozen times and she said the burning light of two stars. And it was perfect because my book begins with a fire um, and I and the two stars, you know, these two very intense personalities who are at war through the whole book. Um, and I had gone through the final, final, final draft of this book and I had inserted this is before the title references to heat or fire on every page. Hmm. And, you know, as a reader, you wouldn't notice that, but it's like this subtext that just creates more heat in the book, more tension. So I, I sent that to my publisher and they were like, that's the title. <laughs> that's man, that is awesome. I mean, it really yeah. has an effect. I always, I, I, when I, when I heard about the name of this book, I was like, I just imagine two stars running parallel to each other, just burning fire and, and this, this uh this explosiveness and that's kind of what it seems like it was on it's, some level. that is that is exactly we, yes a lot of there's a lot of conflict in this book yeah and, um yeah well that's yeah, amazing it's, it, it, it's not a um it is a reconciliation story but it's one with a lot of conflict and heat and it's not sugarcoating the situation it really is it's nitty-gritty you know it's got yeah. a lot of um intensity to it <laughs> intensity. People, people say like they can't they pick it up and they can't stop reading intensity is a good person. word for this yeah <laughs> definitely well, well please tell everyone where they can get the book how they can get it the whole deal you know the spiel <laughs> yeah I do, I do so uh the book is just coming out um it's it's interesting because it's, it's official pub date is a week from today uh november 9th but it's already out it's out on kindle it's out on the audiobook is out and the, all the independent stores are selling it. So it's sort of like been this rolling yeah. launch. Um, you could get it wherever books are sold. Um, and the audiobook is, I, I narrated. Uh, so if you like my reading, you can <laughs> hear me read the whole book. That's right. um, and so that's available. I, I posted um, the first five chapters on my website that people can read for free. Um, so, you know, if you want to read a little more before you decide if you want to buy it. Um, you can go to 
www.lauradavis.net slash chapters. That's www.lauradavis.net slash chapters. Um, and if you just go to my website, lauradavis.net, you could learn about my, I'm a, I'm a writing teacher. I mean, that's what I do for my living. I teach writing workshops and retreats all over the world. And I teach a lot of online classes. So if you're interested in learning more about the craft of writing or writing as a tool for um, healing and uh, transformation, just come to my website, lauradavis.net and my social media handles are there as well. And I'd love to hear from you. That's awesome. And, uh, Laura's episode will be out next week, right in conjunction with the release Ooh. of the book. And uh, you can watch our interview instead of just listening like they're doing now and watch her reading the book, which is actually amazing, watching the her facial expressions and <laughs> the pitch going up. It's really, it's really awesome. Uh. There's something different to watching an interview too than listening as well. So Laura, thank you for giving me some of your valuable time today. I really appreciate oh, it. You're welcome. And, and tell your wife, good luck in her situation. Thank you so much. I'll that be thinking about her. Yeah. I'm going to, I want to tell her about getting the book because I think that this is her story. Very, except there wasn't the resolution that you guys had in that sense, but so much of it was just these two stars just crashing, colliding the, their whole time. And uh, I think it could be a very healing aspect for her. I really do. So I'm hoping. I mean, you'll, you'll see that, you know, when, when she reads it, a lot of the resolution, especially at the end, it happens inside myself. You know, yeah. my mother had dementia. There was, she got to a point where she couldn't participate, you know. Right. And so like that, those final miles were internal for me. Yeah, most definitely. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. And this, I'm sure the book, the feedback you're getting is, is pretty amazing. So thank you again. Thank you so much. I love being on your show. You're a great interviewer. It's a great conversation. Awesome. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Take care.